So if you've been with us over the past few weeks, you'll know that we've been working our way through the Lord's Prayer. So, so far we've talked about what it means to call God our Father, um, what it means to ask that God's will be done, how we are to ask God for provision of our daily needs, and today we're asking what it means to request, to receive, and to offer forgiveness. The petition of the Lord's Prayer we will look at today goes like this. It says, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So that's what we're tackling today. Um, And before I go on, I want to give you a quick bird's eye view of what I want to share this morning. And there should be a slide up here um, that gives you a little bit of an outline, just so you know what you're getting yourself into here. Um, So the first thing I want to focus on is the context of this phrase in the Lord's Prayer as it relates to Jesus's overall message about the kingdom of God. That's the first part. Then I want to look really closely at the petition itself and explore some of its implications, namely the importance of humility when you're requesting forgiveness, when you're offering forgiveness, all of those things. Um, And then finally, um, well, one more thing. Uh, I want to explore what it means for God to be both forgiving and just, because that's kind of a a tricky uh, distinction there. Um, And then I want to explore the obvious question of why forgiveness can be so gosh darn hard. So that's the last bit. Um, And then the last, last bit is just, it'll be a story time. So if you can make it through to the end, just hear the story, I'm happy. So (laughs) stick with me. Um, So the cool thing about preparing a sermon like this is that the passage we're working with is like so tiny and so broad that you can take it in a thousand different directions. And for me, that's like, that's really exciting. You know, I'm used to writing papers where it's like, you know, explain this tiny little thing with these tiny little details. But now it's like, you know, floor is open. I can go in any direction I want. But at the same time, I definitely had to rein in my imagination a little bit in preparing for this sermon. And I find myself seeking a way to center my thoughts on something a little more concrete. Um, And the way that I was able to do this was to zoom out a little bit, look at the Gospel of Matthew, and try to understand what Jesus' purpose was in coming to earth in the first place. It stands to reason that what Jesus understood his purpose to be here on earth would inform the things he said and he did. So what what did he understand his purpose to be? So I'm going to argue today that he makes it pretty clear for us in the beginning of his earthly ministry Um, And this begins just two chapters before the Lord's Prayer, which we just read. So you can turn with me really quick in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, which should also be up on the screen for us, where it says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So here we have the main thrust of Jesus' mission on earth. This is when he's starting his earthly ministry, and this is what he starts with. Um, So everything that he says and he does can be tied back to his announcement of the kingdom of God. And even more specifically, the Lord's Prayer falls right smack in the middle of his famed Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is a collection of his teachings where he announces that the kingdom of God is near and then explores what it looks like to participate in that kingdom. So this begs the question, what is the kingdom of God? Again, one more slide here. This will offer us a quick thesis, which we'll explore in the next few minutes. Um, In short, the kingdom of God is a kingdom that is wholly different from the ones that we humans have set up here on earth. Um, But where does this idea of a new kingdom come from? Um, Did Jesus just kind of make it up and then went with it? Um, I don't think that's true. So from, from the very beginning of his life, Jesus was steeped in the Jewish scriptures, the collection of books that we call the Old Testament. Um, And not surprisingly, the Old Old Testament is like oozing with hints about what this kingdom is going to look like. Um, So throughout throughout the Old Testament, a word thrown thrown around a lot is the word holy. 
Um, and for literally years of my life growing up in church, people tried to explain to me what this actually meant. They would say, Jacob, holy means to be set apart. And I, I like I entered the part where I like, kind of give him a blank stare. I'm like, I don't actually know what that means. Um, so I'm not sure why, but it didn't really click for me what that actually meant until college. Um, is there anyone else who is like sometimes confused by the most basic Christian terms, but you're also too embarrassed to ask like what they actually mean? Yeah, you're not alone. So <laughs> I hope there are, there are more of you out there. Um, back to the Old Testament, though. In calling his people to be holy, you could say that God is asking them to be different, to be set apart. So for Old Testament Israel, this often meant that they were called to be different from the nations around them. Look at me really quick with uh, Leviticus chapter 20, verses 26, which should also be up on the screen. It says, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. So in other words, God has called people of Israel to be different from the nations around them. Why? Because he is different from the other nations' gods, and accordingly he is asking his people to act differently from those around them. Now, does this all work out perfectly? If we know the story of the Old Testament, you know, do, do the people generally obey this? Are they generally holy? Occasionally. Very occasionally they are holy, right? Um, so this doesn't all work out, work out perfectly, um, but occasionally doesn't create any lasting change in the world. And occasionally obeying God and choosing to follow him does not erase evil or arrogance as God desires. And that's why someone who eternally obeys God is necessary. Enter Jesus of Nazareth, right? The perfect combination of willful obedience and eternal divine power. Just as God in the Old Testament calls Israel to be markedly different from the world around them, so Jesus calls his followers to be different from the world. In the same way, as God in the Old Testament claims to be the God who is different from the other gods of the nations, so also Jesus claims to be the king who is different from the other kings of the world. So said differently, with this new kingdom that Jesus is announcing comes a new king, and Jesus claims to be this king. Uh, to match the uniqueness of this new kingdom, Jesus is a king who is markedly different from those here on earth, identifying most closely with the poor, the refugee, the prisoner, the lowest of society. Even broader than being a new kind of king, Jesus is a new kind of human Harkening back to the origins of humanity with Adam and Eve, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project claims that Jesus is the human we were created to be, but perpetually fail to be. Now, I know that was a bit of a, a lengthy exposition of context, um, but it's, being in, import, it's become very important to me um, over the past few years to do my best to, to, to speak about Christ um, and his mission on his terms, rather than trying to come up with my own way of interpreting his words. Um, and this is an attempt to do that. Um, so missing, missing the greater picture of Jesus' message can be really easy when you're zeroing in um, on such short verses like we are today. So with that out of the way, we can really get cooking on the central question. Um, if Jesus' message is all about the kingdom of God and how it is different from the kingdoms we see and live in here on earth, what does this, position, this petition of the Lord's Prayer have to do with that? So right up here, we'll have one more thesis statement here. I'm going to say, requesting, receiving, and offering forgiveness all begin with Christ-like humility. So the petition we're looking at today starts from a place from, of humility, a place where we recognize our own sinful natures and our desperate need for forgiveness. The Christian life is one of constant surrender to Christ, and our request for forgiveness is the logical outworking of this surrender. 
When we admit our need for forgiveness, uh, we set aside the ways of the world and hold fast to the ways of God's kingdom. The world would have us make ourselves look as good as possible, as blameless as possible, but the kingdom of God promises that the power of God's grace is more than enough to heal even the greatest of sinners. Asking forgiveness, no. Asking for forgiveness, though, that's, that's just the beginning of this petition, right? Hard as it can be, perhaps even more difficult, um, the, per, perhaps even more difficult part comes in accepting the reality of God's forgiveness. Does anyone else struggle to live as forgiven people? <laughs> the truth is we do live as forgiven people, and I think so often as Christians we can forget that. We focus so much on the fact that God has forgiven us that we, af- we often forget to let the reality of our forgiveness inform how we live our lives. Uh, for many of us, we let ourselves be shackled by guilt or by shame um, that can result from our sin rather than experience the freedom and the peace that comes from truly accepting God's forgiveness. And so here, here's what is, what is amazing to me about God's forgiveness. To accept God's forgiveness is in one sense amazingly simple. And in another sense, it is immensely difficult. Um, On the one hand, God's forgiveness is made totally accessible to us through Christ. Um, And we'll have a a quote up here from Romans 10 where Paul says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now think about that for a second. Paul is saying that the forgiveness of all sin and the promise of eternal life with God is achieved simply by believing in Jesus' resurrection and submitting to him as Lord. Is that simple? Yes, it's very simple. It's just a one thing to the next. Um, But is it easy? Golly, it is not easy sometimes. Um, Sometimes it is immensely difficult, but the Lord's Prayer doesn't stop there It doesn't stop at asking God for forgiveness, does it? It has the audacity to continue on, saying, as we forgive those who sin against us. There's the kicker. Asking for forgiveness might be easy sometimes. Accepting forgiveness may occasionally come naturally to us. But offering forgiveness to people who sin against us, that is a difficult thing to commit to when we're praying to God. But here we meet every week, claiming that we will forgive others. At this point, I think some of you might be thinking, all right, Jake, we understand the calling. We have to be merciful and forgiving. But why is it so gosh dang hard sometimes? Um, And I think part of the reason for that um, is that it's somewhat against our nature (laughs) as humans. When Adam and Eve chose their own wisdom over and against God's, not only did they choose against God's way, they actually made it harder to go back to God's way. Um, But in this new kingdom that Jesus is announcing, there is a new kind of behavior that is expected of its inhabitants. The way of Jesus sometimes calls us to behavior that is completely against our human instincts. What is the human gut response to someone expressing frustration at you? To throw it right back. What is our instinctual response to being wronged, to wrong someone in return? The Christian life is so difficult partly because it requires immense self-control against some of our most basic human tendencies. And that is why this new kingdom, marked again by God's wisdom rather than human wisdom, can be so difficult for us to live into. Now here I want to make a quick uh, pastoral, practical note. Um, So it's clear that Jesus is saying that we, as we're looking to participate in this new kingdom, we should be marked by forgiveness and mercy to those around us. However, 
Jesus is not saying that we should put ourselves back into abusive situations in the name of forgiveness. There are two things that forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not letting yourself be taken advantage of. And perhaps most importantly, forgiveness does not mean putting up with abuse. Does God tolerate or ignore injustice? Does he let himself be taken, of, taken advantage of endlessly? He doesn't. He is exceedingly patient and slow to anger, but he never lets injustice have the final word. In the Old Testament, he allows Israel to be punished for their persistent sin. At the end of all things, too, God promises that he will punish Satan and the wrongdoers who refuse to heed his warning. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that God will not let evil continue to wreak havoc on his good world. And in the end, that will mean eliminating and completely destroying evil. Forgiveness is a good and a beautiful thing that marks God and his new kingdom, but at the same time, this kingdom will not tolerate evil when it's fully realized. Neither should we be naive in letting injustice go unconfronted. Now, I'm going to stir the pot for us one more time here. Um, there are a few different translations of this, of this prayer, um, and the Greek word that Jesus uses here can be translated as sin, as you've heard this morning. It can just as easily be translated as debts. Um, so, in other words, the Lord's Prayer, or this part of the Lord's Prayer would sound like this. It would say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This new kingdom calls people to forgive debts. Now, let me ask you, is forgiving debts just? We know from scripture that this new kingdom is marked by justice, with Jesus being the messianic king who rules with justice and righteousness. But forgiving debts, is that really just? Now for me, the answer is a clear yes, but I think it's important to ask how and why forgiveness is just, instead of just saying either in the first place that God is not just, which is not true, or that God can just, he can do whatever he wants. Both of, both of those answers are horribly unsatisfying to me uh, for different reasons. Um, but particularly helpful for me in understanding how God's forgiveness um, can also be just was the first week of our current Faith Academy class on biblical justice. Um, so in this first week, we discussed the, the Bible's imagination of what justice is. Um, and a helpful framework for doing so is making a distinction between reactive justice and restorative justice. Um, and I have up on the screen here some overviews of what these two definitions entail. Um, so the first is called reactive justice. Um, and I think that's generally the kind of justice that comes into our mind um, when we hear the word. Um, but this involves punishing a wrongdoer. So it's in response to some kind of wrongdoing. Um, while the second one, we call it restorative justice, um, and the end goal of restorative justice is always the restoration of right relationship. So I have a few examples up here. The reactive justice, that would be something like if someone steals a TV from a store, there's going to be some kind of reaction and there's some kind of punishment. Maybe they you know, like have a, a day or two in jail or whatever it is. Um, on the other side of things, um, this restorative justice, and a good example of that would be God restoring relational shalom between humans and creation. So it was never part of God's plan for creation to be, to include things like natural disasters, right? And so God is just in saying that he will create a new world and he will create a world where that relationship between humans and creation is no longer tarnished. Does that make sense? Um, so that's, that's a little bit there. And I want to be clear here, both of these types of justice are seen all over the Bible and you often see them kind of working in tandem um, so God does indeed punish persistent wrongdoing, 
and he is always working toward the mending and restoration of right relationship, often through his forgiveness. Um, so now let me ask you this. If our understanding of justice was only reactive justice, would forgiveness be just? Perhaps not. However, if we take the Bible's broader definition of justice to include restorative justice, we can now see clearly that forgiveness of sin or forgiveness of debt is indeed just, because justice includes the restoration of right relationship. So, we've made it this far, and I'm very glad to tell you that you've made it to the story time part of the sermon. Um, So this whole concept of God's forgiveness being just uh, because it always seeks restoration is kind of a heady idea, Uh, so I wanted to to end with a really down-to-earth real-life story of restorative forgiveness. Um, And this story starts uh, with this family right up here on the screen. Um, This is a picture of an American missionary family named the Bells uh, with George and Ethel Bell as parents to Robert and Mary uh, Bell. Robert is like the little baby up in the the top right corner of that first picture there. Um, And a lot of this story um, will focus on Robert Bell. Um, So the Bell family, they were missionaries in French West Africa in the 1930s and the 1940s, and they continued to serve there even after George's passing when Robert was only three. Um, In August of 1942, when Robert was 11 years old, uh, the family of three boarded the SS West Lashaway, also pictured here, that's the ship there. Um, It was a freighter that was headed for Trinidad, um, where they would then take another boat and go back to the United States on furlough. Um, Unfortunately, the boat never made it to Trinidad. And on August 31st, 1942, in the midst of World War II, Um, A German submarine called U-66 torpedoed the freighter ship, sinking it within minutes. The ship wasn't even able to get a distress distress signal out before sinking, and in the hectic scramble, the family of three crowded onto a life raft along with 16 other people. The catch was that these 8x10 lifeboats were stocked with rations designed to provide for a maximum of 10 people for 10 days. Um, And here's the part of the story where, for sake of time, I have to cut a lot of the details. There's actually a book written about this whole story. Um, It's called In Peril on the Sea. Um, So if you're curious about it, I have a few copies with me today that you can certainly borrow after the service. Um, But in short, over the next 20 days, the survivors of the shipwreck floated aimlessly in the vastness of the ocean with dwindling supplies of both food and hope. Their adversities included seasickness, turbulent and dangerous personalities on the raft, loss of hope after seeing multiple ships with no way to get their attention, constant terror of circling sharks, the list goes on. And yet, Ethel, uh, the the mother here, a woman of remarkable faith, remained an uplifting and faithful presence on the raft, often reciting psalms from memory or leading the group um, in songs of praise and lament. Finally, on day 20 of life at sea, the little raft was spotted by a British warship. The survivors, now numbered at 17 compared to the start of 19, were bursting with joy at the sight of a friendly ship headed their way. However, joy quickly turned into despair as the British warship, thinking that the raft was a German submarine, started shooting at them. The raft passengers cried out at Ethel, asking her how her God could how her God could, could allow this to happen at the, the last little bit, hope of rescue, and this dramatic irony of the British shooting at them. Um, 
Amazingly, 16 rounds of explosive cannon fire, each of them capable of completely destroying the raft, dotted the sea around them until the warship finally realized that the raft was no foe. On September 18, 1942, this British warship rescued the survivors and took them to safety. And up on the screen here is another photo. Uh, it's one of the raft uh, that was taken by one of the crew members on the British warship. You see it on the left there. Um, and this is the only picture of the encounter that we have. Um, however, if you thought the story ended there, you'd be wrong. Decades after this whole affair, Robert Bell, the 11-year-old boy who had survived all those days at sea with his sister and his mother, started doing some research. With the power of written mail and the library, he managed to compile a good bit of information about the German submarine that had sunk his ship. He was even able to get in touch with the surviving members of the German submarine crew, with this culminating in their invitation for him to join them for a reunion of the submarine crew members in Germany. So, in 1981, nearly 40 years after the sinking, Robert Bell, along with his, his wife Ruth, traveled to Germany, meeting and forgiving the very men who had altered his life so significantly. Um, you can see a picture of Robert here. Um, it's still on this slide here, but Robert is in the top left corner. He's hanging out with all of these German uh, crew members. Um, and uh, again, the, <laughs> the story doesn't just stop there. Um, so Robert Bell, uh, the guy who survived this and went on to forgive these, these German folks, is my grandfather, um, which is kind of crazy. Um, so yeah, Robert Bell, he ended up uh, becoming really, really close uh, with the radio operator of the submarine, whose name was Carl. Um, and now you, you started, maybe started putting the pieces together here. Um, but he, he, Carl and my grandfather uh, kept in touch for, for years to come. And to this day, my family is in close contact with Carl's. Um, in fact, uh, Carl's granddaughter, Julianne, came to know Christ at a summer camp that she attended with my sisters on a visit to the United States. Um, and it's, 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 it's a story that, that seems to grow more and more beautiful uh, with each generation. So on the next slide here, this is a picture of uh, my family um, and Julianne's family that they came and visited us last year. I'm not in this picture, which is a little sad. Um, but yeah, I've got my, my three sisters there, my parents, uh, my sisters, significant others, and then um, two of those kids are my niece and nephew, and then the other two are uh, the children of Julianne, which is incredible. Like, my mom used to ask me all the time when I was a kid, she was like, Jake, how do you know these people? Like, it's incredible. Like, God's forgiveness is how we know these people, and it's just this amazing story. Um, so even just this past year, or I guess a few years ago now, when I turned 21, uh, Julianne sent me a bottle opener um, <laughs> when I turned 21, so we're very close with them. <laughs> Um, but the whole story is one that I grew up hearing over and over, and it just never seems to get old. Um, it's a story of immense tragedy, but also of even greater forgiveness and restoration. So these two families, they were once enemies in a brutal world war, uh, and to this day, they are joining hands in the love and peace of Christ. That is what forgiveness can look like, should we see it through. Forgiveness is a remarkable part of God's redemptive plan for a broken world. And now, in this prayer, Christ invites us to join him in this mission of reconciliation by forgiving those who sin against us. I want to end really quick with a, a quick verse from Micah. And it says this, 
Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Amen.